You are listening to a podcast taken from one of Radio Maria's many live programs. If you enjoy it, please consider making a donation or becoming a monthly supporter. To do so, visit www.radiomariaengland.uk. It is only through the generous support of our listeners that we continue to be a Christian voice by your side. listening to Radio Maria and this is Father Toby with the Friarside on this bank holiday Monday and feast of St. Augustine and a very happy uh, feast to you all of this uh, great saint and also to um, to all women um, a happy feast of uh, St. Monica for, for yesterday um, and as I was reading uh, St. Monica is a is sort of a reminder of the way that sort of all women are called to, to spiritual motherhood because in a sense her her line sort of died out with Augustine who didn't have children and yet Monica is a is a mother to so many all around the the world today so the biological motherhood is a is a great gift and a, and a wondrous um thing but first and foremost all, all women are called to a spiritual motherhood as well I wanted to to share with you first before we resume um Father Herbert's uh, essay on um the sort of the nature of, of faith and the uh, and the compatibility of, of doubt um, with faith, um, where he says doubt is not unbelief. Um, I want to uh, to share with you some uh, just a couple of pages from a, a wonderful um, book called Walking on Water: Reflections on Faith and Art by uh, Madeleine Langel. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. Apologies to the to the French speakers. But, uh, she most famously wrote a children's book called A Wrinkle in Time, um, which I haven't read, but which has come highly recommended and I will read soon. Um, but in this book, Walking on Water, she's giving reflections on faith and art um, in this first couple of essays in it on the on the vocation of the, the Christian artist and, and what it what it means to to, to make art. Um, but there was this these lines which seemed incredibly important for uh, for a bank holiday um on the idea of of rest and and stillness um and also especially for for every every sunday um i think we've really lost um lost the ability right now to sort of live what sunday ought to ought to be i had a lovely encounter on on hampstead heath last week with a nigerian mum and uh and i'm trying to remember where the the other mum was from now somewhere in French speaking Africa oh, in the Central African Republic um, and all their boys and they were really lovely boys and they invited me to to, to join them for, for lunch um, so I had some lovely jell-off rice and the uh, the lady was uh, Nigerian mum was saying to me that she she likes football but she hates the way that um, football imposes on 
on Sunday and introduces this this competition um, between sort of church um, and, and and football, and she wished it could just be on Saturday. And Sunday seems to have turned into a day where we sort of fit in everything that we else that we didn't manage to do during the week. Um, and, and I think we get Sunday wrong when we do that. But here's this couple of pages from Madeleine Lengel. In the summer, I seem to spend my days between the stove and the typewriter, with time out for walking the dogs to the brook, bearing the big red clippers which help to clear the paths. I sit on my favourite rock, looking over the brook, to take time away from business, time to be. I've long since stopped feeling guilty about taking being time. It's something we all need for our spiritual health, and often we don't take enough of it. This spring I was given two posters which I find helpful in reminding me to take being time. Both givers must have known I needed the message. A few weeks before the wedding, I ran impetuously out to the dark garage to turn on the outside light and rammed into a cardboard cat carrier. Mere cardboard, mind you and broke the third metatarsal bone in my foot. I have frequently taken mammoth crashing tumbles without breaking a bone. What a way to do it now, humiliating to say the least, and my children rub it in by emphasising the cardboard. Can you stay off your week for six weeks, the doctor asked. No, I'm off after tomorrow for a ten-day lecture tour all over Ohio. Then we have the wedding and then I get my grandchildren for a week. So off I went, leg in cast, via wheelchair and crutches, and elegant pre-boarding on planes. The first poster was given me on my second stop, the Convent of the Transfiguration near Cincinnati, where I was conducting a retreat. The poster tells me, Listen to the silence. Stay open to the voice of the Spirit. The second poster came a month later, when I was out of the cast but still on crutches, sent me by Lucy Shaw, who is largely responsible for my struggling to write this book. It shows a covered bridge in the autumn, very much like the covered bridge we drive through en route to the crossics, and it echoes my need. Slow me down, Lord. Good messages. When I am constantly running, there is no time for being. When there is no time for being, there is no time for listening. I will never understand the silent dying of the green pie apple tree if I do not slow down and listen to the what the Spirit is telling me. Telling me of the death of trees, the death of planets, of people, and what all these deaths mean in the light of love of the Creator, who brought them all into being, who brought me into being, and you. The questioning of the meaning of being and dying and being is behind the telling of stories around tribal fires at night, behind the drawing of animals on the walls of caves, the singing of melodies of love in spring and of the death of green in autumn. It is part of the deepest longing of the human psyche, a recurrent ache in the hearts of all God's creatures. So when the two messages Listen to the silence, stay open to the voice of the Spirit, and Slow Me Down, Lord, came. I was forced to listen, 
and even to smile as I heard myself saying emphatically to Lucy, No, I most certainly do not want to write about being a Christian artist, for I realised that the very vehemence of my reaction meant perhaps I should, in fact, stop and listen. The Holy Spirit does not hesitate to use any method at hand to make a point to us reluctant creatures. And I just thought that was really fabulous, and it, and it had me thinking a lot about um, how I'm so conscious now of, like, with so much to do of, of not wasting time. Um, but actually, it's not a waste of time to simply be. And I was thinking how um, when God reveals himself to, to Moses in the burning bush, when Moses says to him, um, who, shall I, uh, who shall I say spoke to me? And God simply replies, I am, or I am who I am. And it tells us something about the, the divine nature is, is simply to, to be. Um, God's essence is sort of existence itself. And so simply taking time to, to be is a sort of an entering into the, to the rest of God and uh, participating in the, in the being of God who, who holds us in existence by his, by his love. And it's actually sort of essential to our humanity. It's not a, it's not a waste of time or as somebody perhaps that once described prayer as wasting time with God, which might seem a waste of time in the, in, in the eyes of sort of outputs and, and metrics. Um, but in fact is the, is the most precious time that, that we can, that we can have. And so I know I need to be more conscious, not to try and fill every moment, not in every space to think, Oh, well, what can I read now? Or, or what can I do? But rather simply to just take time to be, um, and the other point that she makes is that when we don't take time to simply be, we're not able to take time to, to listen. And when we're not able to, to listen, well, we're not able to have proper relationships with other people. And God is not able to, to speak to us um, either. And when we take time to simply be, then, then you will probably find as in any time when you, when you sit down to, to pray, first of all, in the, in the silence, first of all, like 101 trivial things crop up into your head. But then given a little more time, what comes up is our our greater fears, our greater worries, our greater, our greater hopes. Um, and we have to take time to, to, to be with those, those deeper, more existential concerns. Otherwise we can live life on a, on a series of trivialities, like what to get for dinner, what restaurant to go to, um, you know, what to, what to wear, um, and not actually sort of confront the reality of our, of our death. I've been struck by my reading of, of Tolkien when he says that essentially the whole of the the Lord of the Rings is a is a is a meditation on death um and what he means by that is that we spend so much of our time sort of running from death whereas death um as Tolkien understood it as a catholic um was in a certain way a, a gift because it was the gateway into eternity with God um so this this bank holiday just take some time to simply be find a find a spot that you that you love perhaps where you can look at some some aspect of god's creation that, that you love be it in a, a park be it a plant in your in your garden or in your 
your house and simply be there with it. Put the put the books far away. Um, put the phone even further away. Um, and dare I say it, even just turn down the radio for a little while and take time to be and know that you are you are loved and you are a child of God. Um, so let's now listen to uh, "Be Still, My Soul." Uh, sung by poor Bishop Hooper. Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is dark and in the veil of tears. You are listening to Radio Maria, and that was poor Bishop. Hooper with Be Still My Soul. That's uh, one of my very favorite hymns that um, I think actually, even in our next little music break, I might just play you a, a different different version um, of that one with one with more voices the, the next time. Such a beautiful hymn um, and such beautiful lyrics. Um, what we're going to do now is after that sort of a little diversion from our essay of uh, from Madeleine Lengel, on the importance of of just just being taking time to just just to be and to exist in relation with God and His creation, um, we're going to to finish off the the very short third essay that we've been reading from Father Herbert McCabe on doubt is not unbelief. And um, when we finished off last week, we'd just been discussing how um, uh, you know our our faith. Uh, you know, requires sort of assenting to a to a number of uh, propositions about God, but our faith is not in these propositions. Um, rather, our our faith is is in the in the reality behind these propositions, the reality which these propositions um, de- describe, and and the and the propositions do not give us the sort of the totality of the of the picture, um, and we have to we have to ask questions. Um, and that's a, a part of what the work of, of theology is about the, theologians, um, and all of us should be theologians, um, about theologians sort of asking, asking questions um, of what the, what the church teaches us uh, about the, 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 love of, the love of God, which is what um, McCabe said is the, is the sort of the ultimate revelation of, of God. Um, is is the revelation of his love, um, and so we finished with him speaking about um, that. There's a, a kind of doubting essential to theology um, and essential to to the, to the faith because doubting involves the asking of of questions, um, and he says like it is the kind of questioning that is called theology. The object of theology is to see the traditional teachings of the church as a unified whole, unified around the gospel that God loves us. And he says that only when we see what the church teaches about sin or grace or the Eucharist or the, or the Trinity as all part of the revelation of the love of God, only when we do this do we begin to understand these doctrines. And the only way to see them is to question them and to question our understanding of them. And by asking the questions, we start to see better how you know, this relates to, to that, and we get, a, we get a fuller picture, and we start to sort of build a, an, an image um, 
and so that we're not just sort of left with words on a on on a page like mathematical equations that we are sent to but we start to get some some image of the reality behind the words now we have to be humble enough to recognize that that my image is, is always going to be a, a pale shadow and i i should always be sort of open to refining my image and and, and going and going deeper into it otherwise i, I create a, an idol of my own thoughts if i if i'm not open to to some deeper more refined understanding of of the of the love of of the love of god but nonetheless my sort of love of god needs to to go beyond statements about god to to the reality of god but he goes on and he says quite often um we simply cannot see the relevance of some doctrine or we suspect that its origins lie in some power struggle in the church rather than in the preaching of the gospel. Quite often the thing seems simply unintelligible or daft. And he says it seems to him that the sensible reaction in such cases is neither to accept the doctrine blindly, simply because you were taught it at school, nor to reject it uncritically for the same reason. The sensible reaction is one of questioning and doubt. It is a reaction that demands a certain amount of work and thought. It is doing theology. Occasionally, if you do this, you will find that what you always thought was a teaching of the church turns out not to be that at all, but simply what a lot of past theologians have thought. The so-called doctrine of limbo, for example. Sometimes you find that what you always took to be the meaning of the doctrine is not what it actually means. That, for example, in the Eucharist, the body of Christ is physically located, disguised as bread that Christ can be the prisoner in the tabernacle? Is it especially true of moral matters that what is called the teaching of the church often turns out to be just the prejudices of the last generation, but one preserved because the church is inevitably a rather conservative and conserving institution? Sometimes the thing will be baffling. Sometimes the job of making sense of some teaching will still be quite intractable. Well, you must not expect to solve all problems quickly. And here it seems to me that your acceptance of this doctrine remains dark. Your faith still coexists with doubt in this area. The doctrine in question cannot be any kind of nourishment to your Christian life. It remains dormant for you. But this is not disbelief. I think a startlingly large number of Christians are this way about such absolutely central doctrines as that of the Trinity. It is a pity, though, if you simply say, well, that is all very difficult, so let's just ignore it and get back to Our Lady of Fatima or the Fellowship of the Eucharist. It is a pity because if you just do that, the chances are you have an inadequate and infantile view of Our Lady and of the Eucharist. And so... An important part of, of what he's saying here, and, and you know, Father Herbert has a, a sort of a, a certain style which can um, be a little bit sort of grating or a little bit sort of um, difficult at times. It sounds like he's he's sort of being dismissive of of what the church teaches or the tradition, but he isn't he isn't being that at all, or at least I don't think that's that's his his in, his intention. Rather, what he's saying to us is. 
you know, no doubt that we 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 must give our assent to the to the teachings of the church. Um, that's a that's a, that's a, that's a given. But he says, first of all, we have to sort of be clear that we understand what are the teachings of the church as opposed to just commonly held views. Um, and so he points out the uh, the the doctrine of of or the as he calls it the so-called doctrine of limbo there, which. Um, you're making the point that limbo has never been a doctrine of the church. It's never been definitively taught. Um, rather, it's something that a lot of the- theologians have, have thought. Um, and there's a difference between what a lot of theologians think um, and uh, and what the church actually teaches. Um, although the church doesn't ignore what theologians are, are thinking. It's part of the, the way that she becomes in- informed and... and and refines and and develops doctrines. But I think the more important point is that he says that that it's not supposed to be just that we hear some difficult teaching and we think kind of, oh, well, I accept that, but it's difficult and I'll never really sort of understand it. Um, Because that sort of attitude, um, well, very few people manage to like then accept accept the teaching um, and live by it. Rather, what they tend to do is they start to sort of pick and choose their teachings, leading to the phenomenon that some people sort of call cafeteria um, Catholicism. Um, and we can see from sort of the the sociological surveys of the of the state of the church in this country now that a lot of people simply dismiss the difficult teachings of the of the church, um, like around contraception, around abortion. Um, and around, I probably sort of you always seem to like end up on the ones around sort of marriage, the family, and sex. But also, a lot of people are, are probably just ignoring Christ's teachings about um, what we owe the poor and the way that we ought to be thinking. Oh, that's too difficult, or it can't really mean mean that. Um, but particularly around these doctrines that we find difficult to accept, he's saying, don't don't just sort of accept it and then not ask any questions of it, but rather sort of ask questions of it in order that you might understand why the church teaches this and how it relates to the essential doctrine of the church that god is love um and that when you do this actually you start to bring the the doctrine alive and then it starts to be life-giving um for you but if we don't ever ask questions if we're afraid to ask questions then we never move on to this next stage and and the problem is because all of the the church's doctrines in a sense are a, a riffing on that sort of one doctrine that one word that god is that god is is love um that if we if we don't understand certain parts of the church teach the church's teaching if we don't enter more deeply into them then all the other things that we we do hold um to be true and do in in some ways sort of comprehend well they've They've lost uh, a lot of their a lot of their vitality. They're a shadow of what they're what they're supposed to supposed to be. Um, so our faith is su- supposed to be a, a questioning faith. Yes, there's a there's a, a certain um, obedience sort of owed, um, but it's a, it's it's an obedience which which respects the fact that God is love and God is reason. 
um, and that these things aren't simply to be to be accepted without without understanding, but rather our acceptance should be the the beginning of understanding and asking questions, and then being still enough to to learn. So let's listen now to another another setting of um, uh, it's a different different hymn. Actually, we're going to listen now to uh, be still for the for the presence of the Lord. listening to Radio Maria and this is Father Toby um, with the Friar side and uh, we are just coming to the end of um, a third essay by Father Herbert McCabe um, saying that doubt is not unbelief and we've just been speaking before that piece of music about the the way all the doctrines of the church um, fit to fit together and to kind of just accept without sort of seeking to come to some understanding of some doctrine actually diminishes our our understanding of of all the other sort of teachings of the of the church and father herbert was saying that that sort of doubting in terms of like not not understanding not understanding how this could be true and then asking a question about it this is not disbelief that disbelief is something different and he says to understand this we need to get back to our model of the child and her parents what happens to the child who has lost faith in her parents' love? Well, he says, the first thing is fear. A fear that she does not matter, that she has no value or importance. This is the fear that St. John says is cast out by love, by being loved, by knowing you are loved. And so the child who is deprived of love is characteristically defensive, she is terrified of admitting any inadequacy or guilt. I mean, terrified of admitting it even to herself. And he says that what then happens is that gradually this fear actually turns into a self-righteousness. The person becomes convinced of their rightness with a conviction that conceals and is meant to conceal a deep, deep anxiety. Um, and we can very easily recognize this in other people. Um, it's not always so easy to recognize it in ourselves. Father um, Herbert continues that what happens is that that child becomes able, unable simply to accept herself warts and all as valuable because someone loves her. So she has to create a self-image for herself, a self-flattering image. Um, and we can think he was writing this um, a couple of decades ago, um, but how much more does that ring true in the age of uh, social media about creating a self-image, a self-flattering image. And he says that she will feel the need to protect her importance by having power over others. Um, and again, this just rings so true. We, we think about how um, actually so much of, uh, of, of sort of identity politics, um, which goes on now, in fact, is a, is a, is a power play. Um, and a, and a, and a, and a seeking a, a, an authority over 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 others, an authority based on my identity to be able to sort of speak to to other I, I, identities. 
um, and sort of put them put them in place. And he says, oh, he adds also, she will be terrified of being at the mercy of others vulnerable to them. She will guard her self-image with possessions which make her independent of others. She will, at all costs, protect what she calls her freedom, meaning her isolation from others and the demands that they might make on her. Um, and if you read that, you can't help but think about the the, the language that that exists around um, so-called the, the the euphemistic language around sort of you know reproductive rights, reproductive freedom, um, which is uh, snake oil um, words for the the right to have an an abortion um, in the names of sort of aut- autonomy and freedom, my body, my my choice. Um, and that this is this is the sort of the dominant narrative that that's going that's going on now. Um, having sort of interrupted it like a few times, just the riff on contemporary examples of what he's talking about in that paragraph, I want to I want to just repeat it because I think it's so important. Um, so he says the first thing that happens to the child who's lost faith in her parents' love is fear, a fear that she does not matter, that she has no value or importance. And the child who is deprived of love is characteristically defensive. She is terrified of admitting any inadequacy or guilt, terrified of admitting it even to herself, becoming gradually self-righteous, convinced of her rightness, with a conviction that conceals and is meant to conceal a deep anxiety. And so he says she's not able simply to accept herself warts and all as valuable because someone loves her, but rather has to create a self-image, a self-flattering image, and will then have to protect her importance by having power over others. Child will then be terrified of being at the mercy of others, of being vulnerable to them, and will guard their self-image with possessions which make them independent of others, and will then at all costs protect what they call their freedom by which they mean isolation from others and the demands that they might make on them. And she will see the world as a place fundamentally of competition and struggle in which she has to win, rather than of friendship and cooperation. I think that's just so important and so true. And he says, all that is an image of disbelief. If you fail to believe that the most important and fundamental thing about you is that you are loved. If you fail to believe in God, then you have no recourse except to believe in yourself. All sin arises from the deep fear that is involved here. You only have to ask yourself why in the end you have sinned on any particular occasion. If you think hard enough and honestly enough, you will trace it back to fear. Fear that you will not matter Fear that someone is threatening the importance or status or wealth you have carefully built up for yourself. Fear that you are missing out on some experience that makes you you. Tracing sins back to their single roots in such anxieties is as important as tracing all Christian doctrines back to their roots in the faith that we are loved. In fact, it is part of the same process. All sin is a symptom of faithlessness or uncertainty about being loved, as all belief is an affirmation of that love. The societal and political manifestation of disbelief, 
or of belief that we make ourselves and are only what we make ourselves. This manifestation of disbelief is, of course, the world of liberal individualism, the world of isolated individuals asserting their freedom against each other. And of course, if this is what society is like, you need a state whose job it is to control and limit the freedom of its citizens. The world that believes in the autonomous free individual also has to believe in the bureaucratic state. Society is then seen as a perpetual struggle between these two, sometimes emphasizing the individual, sometimes the collective. But all this is the world of disbelief, the world without God. This is the world from which Jesus came to redeem us, to give us faith in his Father's love, so that we do not need to assert ourselves and our innocence and our rightness, so that we can relax and confess the truth about ourselves, so that we stop judging ourselves and others, because we know that it doesn't matter. God loves us anyway, so that we are liberated enough to risk being vulnerable to others, liberated enough to risk loving and being loved by others, liberated enough to know that we belong to each other because we belong to God. In that world, we will not cling fanatically to particular formulas and doctrines simply because they are our security, any more than we cling to our own righteousness. We can be relaxed either way. In such a world, a belief that we are called to share in divine life and do already share in it can go with a clear awareness of our own weakness and inadequacy and sin. And in such a world, believing in God's love can go with a critical awareness of the weakness and inadequacy of our ways of expressing it. Our belief can and indeed must go with a certain kind of searching and questioning, a certain kind of doubt. Faith will exclude doubt altogether only when it ceases to be faith and becomes the vision of the eternal love, which is God. I just think that's an amazing um, close to that essay. So, so important. Um, and it's a, the second time that that I've that I've read it, um, but yeah, such a, a treasure trove for uh, for future preaching in there. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, in a couple of moments, we're going to uh, pray the Angelus and then go to the Mass at Walsingham. So, please do stay with us. Mm -hmm. 